Welcome to the Analytics Podcast on Investment Skill. My name is Rick Damasio. I'm the founder and chief executive of Analytics, and I'm joined by Tim Harkness, the renowned sports psychologist and data scientist. Tim and I share a number of common interests. Firstly, is that we both work with the elite, in my case, fund managers, and in Tim's case, in the world of sport. But also, we have a professional interest in data analytics. The first of these podcasts is on a phenomena that we do see from time to time which is when Star Fund Manager hits a period of poor performance. The podcast will talk about um, what this might mean from a personal perspective and finish up with some practical advice and some tips on how to cope. Tim, welcome. Thanks, Rick. Nice to be here. So to set the scene, I've seen great fund managers with you know, really successful track records and then suddenly, for whatever reason, they hit a performance problem. At, at one level, the issue is a, how do you get focused again and improve the decision-making and, and just return to normal? But there are some cases where it affects the individual um, personally. So, Tim, what do you, do you recognise any of that? And do, you know, do you see it, these as recognisable yeah. problems? You know, I, I think, Rick, when, when we've worked together, um, certainly we have conversations about these kinds of patterns. Some, some of these patterns are common patterns, and, and that's why we're talking about them, because we think that they have a wider relevance. The one pattern is where somebody hits, you know, what, what I've heard you call an air pocket. And then I think we can have additional complications where people become extremely invested in in the role and in the, in the identity. And I'm just wondering if you could tell me a bit more about that. If, if somebody was to be over-invested in the identity of being a, a successful person working in this industry, what does that look like? It's the cult of the staff and manager. And although the industry has done everything it possibly can to try and downplay that, nevertheless, the concept of staff and manager is still alive and well. So what that means in practice is that they become wholly and entirely associated and connected with the track record. The individual has been highly successful, has generated this great track record, and the two things just become one and the same. So when the track record falls away, even temporarily, I've seen that the track record not only crumples, but also it has a crumpling effect on the individual's sense of self-worth. And that, to me, sounds and really interesting, Rick, the idea that the track record itself crumples, but it also has a crumpling effect on the individual. Everybody hits air pockets, but not everybody crumples. I'm just wondering, you know, if you could give me an example of somebody who's made himself vulnerable to th- this kind of pressure. Um, as you say, this doesn't apply to everyone, um, but when it does apply, it's really it's really significant and important for that individual. And over the years, what I've seen is that is that that crumpling effect can be brought about for both professional and personal reasons. The professional ones being is that they've in, they've they've built up strong degree of trust and confidence in with their clients and in the marketplace and they feel that's going to be eroded by this period of poor performance and then on a personal level say they built up a very extravagant lifestyle I don't know collected cars I'm just making this up I don't know private jet who knows but we all recognize that that it's perfectly possible to 
acquire a very um, extravagant lifestyle with all the trappings of wealth. That they need and to be maintained. That it needs to be maintained, exactly. And therefore they feel that, that if the track record were to go some for some reason, that it not only jeopardises their professional career, but it may also jeopardise their personal lives as well. You know, last week we spoke about a scenario where, um, where things weren't as bad as they seemed. And really that was the message, is that if you use the correct resilience skills, it enables you to evaluate the size of the threat. And sometimes we experience more alarm than we should. And that is what is called an alarm problem. But sometimes when our fear mechanism is reacting, it's because we have a danger problem. And that's because we're facing some real issue here. Let's take, for example, somebody's hidden air pocket. And as you said, they've maybe lost 25% of the gains that they've made over a period of time. And they've lost it 25% quite quickly. They're now facing a, a, a genuine threat uh, to their profession. And if they've made themselves reliant on the trappings of wealth and the trappings of, uh, of success, they're facing a genuine threat to their uh, personal well-being also. I think really we can explore two scenarios here. The, the one is where the, 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 there is a genuine problem, but it's not their fault. Uh, when things are just so volatile, um, th there's a significant element of performance that you can't control. But there's another scenario also, and this is a scenario where you've taken wrong decisions or you've made a mistake. And I think in some ways that's a more interesting one to explore because while for sure we're all familiar with uh, bad luck in life or life taking a, a tough turn, in some ways when life takes a tough turn independently of our own actions, it's easier to cope with. Whereas when we've exposed ourselves to risk, when we've taken certain decisions, when we've been active in a certain way and then things go wrong, it kind of hurts differently. And when we end up in that situation, when there's been a fall, I think then what we need to start to do as part of this crump, uncrumpling effect is we need to start to explain it. The one way of explaining mistake is what I would say is the eye off the ball theory, which is just that, you know, I, I just took my eye off the ball. And in fact, I, I was talking to a footballer just the other day. The, the funny thing is in football, the, the more common problem is that you don't take your eye off the ball. It's that you take your eye off the man. Um, so what actually more commonly gets spoken about in football is ball watching. Uh, we watched a video where he tracked back 70 yards, uh, made up ground that wasn't even his ground to make up, covered a player, and then for a moment just started w watching the ball and the player slipped one yard away from him. And just that slight moment of inat inattention was all, all it took for the, the player to receive a ball and score a goal. I think that's something that we can all relate to, is we can all relate to a loss of concentration. But in some ways, that's quite a benign explanation. Um, and we're a fund manager to have made an error um, that's cost him performance. But in some ways, more importantly, it's cost his clients and real people, it's cost them real people real money. And in, in that instance, there does actually need to be some soul searching here. And is it enough just to say, well, I took my eye off the ball? Or was there something deeper going on? Uh, I think the one is something called the fundamental attribution error, which is that we explain our own success as being due to our own uh, skills, and we explain our own failures as being 
due to bad luck and we explain other people's success as being to good luck and other people's failure as being to lack of skill. And what can happen is that successful people can start to forget all of the uh, lucky breaks that they've had, they can start to forget all of the support that they received, they can start to forget all of the people around them who've made their success possible and they can start to tell themselves a story, this is just about me. I think, and I think you put your finger on exactly the issue there. Just so, so that phrase you used, it's about me. And that is what I've seen in over 40 years. When people start believing it's about me. You know, one of the truly distinguishing features of our industry is something called the hit rate. And what that means is that, as you know, Tim, you know, we're a data business yeah. and we, 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 we calculate the hit rates. And on our measure, you know, a really good fund manager gets 54% of their decisions right. And a fabulous fund manager is getting 57% of their decisions right. Okay. So what, but what that means, even, even at the 54 what that means at any point in time, the chances are they're getting 46% of their decisions wrong. Yeah. And therefore, and the telltale signs is that they, they attribute the, four, the 54 to skill yes. and the 46 to bad luck. And also they draw a veil over the 46. Yes. And I think this is where data analytics and evidence plays a key role in terms of that veil of ignorance that can sometimes be pulled across underperformance. Uh, we now have objective information. So that's the one slightly less benign explanation of um, of a star performer making an error, is that they've actually become complacent because they've overestimated their own skill. Um, so, you know, th th that's the one reason why I think uh, star performers can be vulnerable to making errors. Another reason is what Nassim Nicholas Taleb would call skin in the game. When fund managers have been successful for a period of time, the more successful they become, and the bigger their own private bank accounts become, the less skin they have in the game. Because in some ways, if it all goes pear-shaped, uh, and a phrase I heard once is, I've had my time in the sun. So if it all goes wrong, in some ways, they're not the ones who are going to be hurting because they just quit and they retire to their big house and their car collection and their you know their daughter's pony field i think tim i think i think to you know objectively you would say that's right but you see i think the psychology of a star in any field is not gonna, is is going to hurt yes and and retiring to you know a field to ride horses or do whatever it's always going to niggle them yes. and it's always going to hurt yes. because at one level, objectively, as you say, you know, they've made enough money, they can walk, they can live comfortably and ever live happily ever after. But at a, at, a, at, a, at a deeper level, they know that they left the job unfinished. And, and Rick, I'm glad you brought that up because that brings me to the third scenario is what we're talking about here is somebody who has a high level of motivation to succeed but also has a low level of exposure, has a low level of personal exposure. And that combination of high desire, low exposure, can lead somebody to become a risk taker. What does exposure mean? They don't have a lot of downside. 
So, you know, the, the, the joke about the, the chicken and the pig in terms of their exposure to your breakfast, that, that if the pig wants you to have a good breakfast, he's highly exposed, whereas the chicken is less exposed. <laughs> That's terrible. <laughs> and, okay. and in a way, you know, the fund manager who's paid off, uh, you know, his big house and he's financially secure for the rest of his life, in some ways, he actually has a low exposure to failure because financially he's going to be okay. Now, he's still highly motivated to succeed because he enjoys the trapping of success and he enjoys the acclaim. And that scenario of low financial exposure but high motivation can lead somebody to become a risk taker. Yeah, and I suppose, I suppose in, in our world, these people live and breathe their numbers. But I think that... that what you're talking about there is the risk of complacency and actually hubris and believing that they walk on water. The really interesting question is, well, how do they get back on their feet? Yes. And our industry has a terrible reputation for trashing people after bad numbers. Yes. What I'd like to discuss now is, well, you know, if, if you're a star performer and you've had, for whatever reason, whether it's, you know, hubris, complacency, bad luck, you're down, you know, you feel as if you're down and out. You're on the canvas yeah. and you've got to pick yourself back up. You know, it, again, I think what's really important here is, um, is to distinguish between two kinds of fear. The one is that I have an overactive fear system. And the second is that there's a genuine problem. So while the experience of the emotion is exactly the same, the outcome could be completely different. And just as an example, when I was a boy in South Africa, we had this enormous garden and sometimes I'd end up at the bottom of the garden at night and I would become afraid of wolves. Now, there are no wolves in South Africa, so what was going on is that my fear system was being overactive. A few years later, I once found myself standing in the bush face to face with a rhinoceros. And my fear system was also highly active there. But that in that scenario, I had a genuine danger problem. And <laughs> I bet you did. <laughs> I bet you did, Tim. I can't say I've ever faced a rhino, but yeah, my I, goodness I, me, I can't imagine I, it. <laughs> I, I did some extremely fast running. You know, really the point that I'm making is that we can experience fear under two different circumstances. The one is where we're imagining a problem, but the other is that there really is a real problem. And when I was feeling afraid of the wolves, what I had to tell myself is that there's actually no problem here. On the other hand, when I was facing the rhinoceros, I had to tell myself, look, you have got a big problem here and you need to do something very different other than just standing still. And I think the same scenario applies in an investment uh, environment where sometimes something has just happened and you've not really done anything wrong. When you haven't done anything wrong, you need to just keep doing the same thing. So you need to be reassured. There are other scenarios where you have done something wrong, where you've either made a one-off mistake or you've dug yourself into a bit of a hole and you are now consistently making bad decisions. Can I just ask you if, if you've experienced yeah. both of those scenarios, if you've actually seen someone lose it, 
Oh yeah, no, there's no, there's no question. Gosh, you know, even going back to the eighties, um, when the financial, you know, when fund management was a very different place, is that you would see people do really wacky things, completely out of character. Suddenly yes. they would start. Suddenly they would start buying and selling at a sort of rapid rate, almost sort of like the gamblers thingy. I I think there's some sort of gamblers phenomena about people trying to get money back or something, get losses back through. And and you just think, no, stop it. You know, it's it's not going to help you. You're making it worse. And in some of these cases, you've just seen people make the problem worse by them being overactive or you know, just repeating the same errors, thinking they'll eventually come right. Yes. You know, and and and, the, and there that's are interesting. team different examples of that. Yes, because now you know that this person has skill because they've been acting with skill for years or an entire career. Mm. And then suddenly they end up in a situation where they're behaving as if they do not have skill. And out of character. Right. you're in this situation what do you do and yes. and I know Tim that you know that we've developed over the years a very simple and effective principle and rule of thumb yeah so yes. Tim perhaps you would like to describe you know what it is and yeah um, yeah well I'll tell a story it's, it, it's a footballer that I worked with and when he was about 13 years old he realized that when he played a match he would be highly anxious and that anxiety would affect his performance negatively. And the anxiety would persist until the opposition team had scored a goal. And suddenly, when they were 1-0 down, he would be freed from his anxiety, almost as if he had already encountered the worst-case scenario and it you know, turned out not to be as bad as he had thought. Uh, so once they were 1-0 down, he'd be free to play and he'd play really well. And eventually he realized, even though he was only 13 years old, he realized that this was a pattern. And he started to pretend that uh, the score was always 1-0. So when he went to a match before kickoff, he had said to himself, just remember, the score is already 1-0. And he found that by doing that, he would be free of the anxiety of conceding a goal. And eventually, as time went by, he got a little bit tired of um, pretending that the score was 1-0. So he started to say to himself, pretend that the score is 0-0. And that became his approach. And he said, the score is always nil-nil. What that meant is that, in some ways, the score is irrelevant. Because what you have to do is accept the situation that you are in now and move forwards. So if his team are losing heavily, actually doesn't matter. It's not going to change what he does in the future. If his team are are winning heavily, it also doesn't matter. It doesn't change what his processes are and what his responsibilities are and the classic scenario in football is that when you're in front you start to get scared that you're going to lose your lead so you become overcautious. Um, on the other hand uh, a classic scenario when you are losing is that you become a desperate to recover and so you become ex- excessively risk-taking this this player who has the idea the score is always zero zero what he's doing is he's anchoring on the current moment as a fresh start what matters is where i am now and what matters is what i do from now 
I think this nil-nil principle just resonates so strongly with our world because it's exactly the same. Every day you start with a historical performance and it could be good or it could be bad. Yeah. And and I think that, that being able to just draw a veil over that and focus on the job in hand, which is the decisions you're going to take today, you know, it's just really important. You've just got to be able to draw a veil over the past, recognise that sometimes you're ahead, sometimes you're behind, but you've just got to keep going. You've got to just keep doing what you're good at and keep focused and just allow your skills and talents to come to the fore and not be buried in all the emotional stuff that goes on in your heads. And Rick, just to pick up on that phrase, all the emotional stuff, because I think what happens with emotion is that emotion unconsciously affects us. And I've had this experience myself of, um, of being shown that when my emotions are moving in one way or another, it affects my levels of motivation, it affects the amount of time that I give myself to think, and it affects my, my willingness to take on risk or my desire to avoid risk. I think this is where the, um, the data analytics is so important because it provides an objective measure of what is happening independently of the emotion. I think the other thing that you and I spend a lot of time doing is talking to people about processes. And I think processes are also critical because when we have a well-established process, um, that can again ensure us against the, um, the variation uh, in our emotions. And it's the process that keeps us consistent. And sometimes the best way to achieve consistency is to have a consistent process rather than necessarily trying to expect ourselves to be some kind of a robot and never having uh, and, and never having emotions at all. I think that's absolutely right. In in the nineteen eighties when I started there was a the belief that fund managers were like fighter pilots, ducking and diving and right. and of course it's just, just nonsense. Yeah. You've got to have a process. Yes. You've got to you've got to be able to think in a consistent and rigorous way. You've yep. got to be able to do your homework. And and not only does a process mean that it's repeatable, it also allows you to anchor to something that's solid. Yes, that you can say this is what I do. This is how I do it, and this is what I should be doing. And and if I depart from it, this is what I will return to. Absolutely. And you know, and I think the nil nil principle is one which just allows allows people at an individual level to keep focused on what they should be doing. On the process. On the process, exactly, Tim. Thank you, Tim. I thought that was I thought that was really helpful and and you know we brought out an important principle with a nil-nil um, principle, and I think it encapsulates it beautifully. Yeah. And I look forward to our next. And I look forward to our next podcast. Yeah. Thanks for having me, Rick. Lovely, Tim. And thank you very much. And yeah. I'll see you soon. Thanks, Rick. Yep. Yeah. See you soon.